This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Downey. Our guest this week is Julie Anna Potts, President and CEO of the North American Meat Institute. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with the Meat Institute's Juliana Potts, next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's crop insurance industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 311 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. After a very challenging 2020, Juliana Potts, President and CEO of the North American Meat Institute, says her members and affiliates are anxious to find a new normal past the COVID pandemic. Obviously, for the restaurant industry and for the meat industry who supplies it, we are as anxious as anyone to see our customers get back on their feet. Uh, we would uh, and have pledged to do what we can to ensure that that, that is the case. Um, it is, it is uh, going to be, um, you know, a, a long road, um, but as soon as we see, you know, the opportunities to uh, switch uh, our supply back to um, food service, wherever that may be and however that may be, um, our companies are, are ready to do that. I think we all learned a lot about how uh, nimble uh, those uh, kinds of uh, decisions and, and configurations of, of processing have to be, but the uh, effort is there to make sure our food service uh, partners get back on their feet as soon as possible. Well, during the crashing wave of COVID, as you suggested, the food service industry dropped off. That was huge for your for for your membership. But now that that wave is over, and consumers have become more accustomed to going back to the grocery store, or better yet shopping digitally online with consumer uh with with curbside pickup or even delivery for that standpoint following the initial crash what do you expect now from the attitude of the consumer and the way that they purchase meat and where they purchase meat we saw and again you know referencing our uh recent survey so this is very recent data um, the number of shoppers who purchased meat online grew 40 percent in 2020. Not surprisingly, people were, you know, were having to stay at home, and it was a lifeline for a lot of people. Um, the majority of those online purchasers, almost 60 percent, expect to continue purchasing about the same amount online in 2021. So at least. Sitting here right now, we feel like shopping habits, you know, may have permanently changed. That said, I think with the weather warming up and uh, people's desire to to be outside, um, you know, dining uh, outdoors and being able to be out uh, with uh, more folks vaccinated uh, is going to mean a return to to restaurants as well. So 
going into the grocery store for for purchases may have decreased. Online may stick around, but I do believe that there will be a, a strong pent up desire to be out in the in uh, the food service arena as soon as possible. Also, we have seen uh, from some uh, recent surveys of consumers and and just studies of, of of where they spend their money that there has been an increase in plant based meat products or alternative meat products. We have many members in the organization who produce plant based or processed plant based as well as mixed products, meat and plant based. So. It's really throughout the industry something that our companies are taking uh, a look at what consumers want and say they want and are purchasing. I think there's room for all those choices uh, on the consumer palette because meat products, animal animal products, are still very popular, you know, as sources of the best kind of protein. And so I think as folks experiment with different plant-based products, it's certainly a choice that, um, that the Meat Institute supports. Last year, nearly 98.5% of American households purchased animal meat and animal products, animal protein, and then 43% buy more meat now than before the pandemic. So it's not something that, um, uh, you know, is necessarily concerning as companies who belong to our organization look at how they are meeting consumer needs and and adopting, um, you know, their uh, their own products to meet those needs. Agriculture and the food industry went through a long discussion and finally some legislative action on GMO food labels. Well, now California voters, through Proposition 12, have sent meat production standards for their farmers and for any other meat producer or processor that wants to sell in their market. How is this a challenge for the Meat Institute? Well, it's a huge challenge for our pork and veal producers. The Prop 12 ballot initiative that was passed imposes space requirements for uh, breeding pigs and veal calves, as well as meat from the offspring of the breeding pigs. And so if the members of our organization do not process meat produced in the way that California says, then they will not be able to, under the, the initiative, sell fresh meat into the California market as of uh, January 1, 2022, and it's already uh, the case for veal. So it's a huge issue for our membership um, because California is an enormous market for all of our members who produce pork and veal. So we have taken on the charge of uh, really challenging uh, the constitutionality of what California has done here in this initiative that passed in 2018. We have um, pursued it in the district court and the Ninth Circuit in California and uh, not surprisingly uh, lost uh, our case at that level. And so we have filed a a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court to be heard um, on this issue of whether California can dictate um, animal husbandry practices and really 
any kind of production practices in other states can mandate them around the, the, the country. It seems to us that um, this creates uh, a patchwork of regulations and really threatens the flow of interstate commerce. And what we're asking is for the U.S. Supreme Court to answer that question. Who has joined your position? We have at the Ninth Circuit level. We were very pleased to have um, many states, 20 states, uh, plus the federal government, join our position uh, asking the Ninth Circuit to um, overturn uh, the, the ballot initiative. We have just received an amicus brief with 20 states Attorney General filing, signing a brief in support of our petition to the Supreme Court. So, you know, we are hopeful that uh, with that kind of support from states around the country asking the court to uh, take a look at the constitutionality of this, because look, if we allow this to stand, then any state could pass a similar ballot initiative and we could have 50 different requirements for really any kind of production or manufacturing. So for every type of industry. Is it frustrating in the fact that this came from a ballot initiative in a state as opposed to through a committee and legislative process of state government? It is frustrating because the ballot initiative and the proponents of it highlighted for the voters of California practices in animal husbandry that that, that no longer exist. It, it really was not a view of modern animal agriculture. It was it was a throwback. And the people of California believed that uh, there were reasons for mandating this and and voted for it. But it was not accurate in its depiction of how, for example, veal calves are treated and raised currently. So we, we believe that the voters of California, if they understand how this is going to raise prices, uh, if anything else, you know, in on pork and veal in California, that was not explained. This is not about food safety at all. And it really isn't accurately depicted in terms of animal welfare either. So for that reason, it was very frustrating to not have a process in the legislature where all of those elements of what was done here could have been presented and we might have had a different result. So the consequences of the Proposition 12 vote could fall on consumers, can fall on producers, uh, not just in California but across the country, and also the meat industry. Absolutely. It is bad for everyone, but particularly consumers who who will pay higher prices and uh, and and really might even experience the kinds of shortages that they won't understand. I don't believe there is a connection in most consumers' minds between you know what has happened with Prop 12 and what they're actually going to see in the grocery store or at their restaurant. So is this an issue that now is in the judicial branch of government that ultimately should have been in the legislative branch or still needs to go there? I believe that it does. I do believe that the constitutionality question is rightly to be answered in the court, but there is the potential for legislative action to correct the the burden here, to address the burden on interstate commerce 
and the economic impact that something like this, if it were implemented just in California, that's bad enough. There is something similar that has been implemented in Massachusetts. There are other initiatives that are popping up in other states around the country. So it's not as if this is a theoretical threat to production practices in agriculture, but also really in manufacturing. If you can do it to animal agriculture, you could do it to really any industry to create requirements in other states in order to participate in a state's economy. It's just really turning the Constitution on its head. And so that's why we're asking the court first, and then uh, we'll see what happens there. But eventually, a legislative solution may be in order. Staying under the umbrella of challenges, uh, it's not been too many weeks ago that we had Chuck Connor uh, of the nation's uh, cooperatives uh, on this program, uh, and he suggested that the, he, he had a, a real fear that some would use the discussion of climate to attack uh, the meat industry, to attack agriculture overall. Do you feel that that is a threat with especially the the large animal feeding operations that we have in the country that have helped to supply the meat that your industry de- uh, it depends on? I see the opportunity as much as I do the threat, and it is because of the work that many, many in the industry have done to identify the types of emissions and the life cycle of uh, emissions from animal agriculture. You know, we could debate with opponents of animal agriculture the characterization of animal agriculture as a contributor to greenhouse gases. However, I believe, as many in the agriculture industry do, that animal agriculture as well as crops are a solution to our overall issues with with climate. As we move forward, we in the meat industry want to be at the table when these discussions are are being had, whether it's in the agriculture committees in the House and Senate or in the Congress at large or with this administration, USDA and EPA and the White House. We are eager to be part of the solution and to understand not just as the, you know, my, my membership and its four walls of its plants, but the entire supply chain. How do we communicate what we are doing, the improvements that, that are being made and have been made and the kinds of real contributions that animal agriculture makes to greenhouse gases as opposed to what in many cases uh, is not accurate. And and we just think that there's more of a solution in animal ag than, than not. Uh, Julianne, is, is there a labor issue in your industry? And if there is a labor issue, does the Farm Worker Modernization Act that the House has uh, approved resolve it? Or what do you need from Washington if this problem still persists? There is a, a very, very uh, big labor challenge in the meat and poultry industry, um, keeping keeping workers, you know, recruiting and, and retaining um, a workforce, uh, both skilled and unskilled, is something that existed before COVID uh, and and is is still a big challenge. So, you know, we are supportive of efforts to 
help solve um, uh, the workforce issues that exist in our livestock and crop industries, our fruit and vegetable. We are we stand with agriculture uh, in getting workers that can participate uh, legally and, and effectively here for agriculture in general. We will need uh, additional assistance in um, bringing uh, workers who are uh, willing to and, and can work in the meat and poultry industry into the U.S. Uh, as well. So we are very supportive of any effort, any federal effort, to address those kinds of issues, whether it be for production agriculture or for our meat and poultry and other food processing industry. What strides have the meat processors of the country made with regard to keeping their workers safe, especially now as this COVID situation has worn on? Oh, that's a great question, and I'm really happy to address it. I feel like we in the meat industry, meat and poultry industry have um, done an amazing job, our members have, of, of addressing under very difficult circumstances last year and into this year very effectively uh, worker safety. Um, as everyone is aware, um, COVID hit uh, uh, very hard in the spring, and there were uh, additional issues for the meat industry as um, there were, you know, absenteeism, um, as well, you know, due to illness, as well as as, as fear and um, other issues that happened as health departments really not knowing uh, how to reopen a plant would would um, ask a plant to, to to shut down for a while. The industry pulled together, got its PPE by hook or by crook, uh, did temperature checks, uh, started staggering um, shifts, made. Um, um, pay, paid for testing, uh, a, additional efforts on, you know, paid sick leave, really over the course of several months put everything, every measure possible in place, including in the plant uh, barriers between workstations, separations in hallways and stairwells, uh, those kinds of things. And as a result, and due to these extraordinary efforts uh, that uh, I, we have back of the napkin, a billion and a half uh, across several members of the industry investments, and even more than that, we feel in the whole industry, the infection rates are down 98 uh, percent in the meat and poultry industry than they were in May of last year. So that's really impressive. Now the effort is on vaccinations. We have joined together with uh, the union, the UFCW, to ask state governments to prioritize our workers. Um, that has been a little bit different in every state. We are still uh, beating the drum on getting vaccinations because that is where uh, the the biggest um, uh, change in uh, our the perception that the meat industry is is. Uh, is, is getting past the pandemic is going to happen. And so lots and lots of our companies are anecdotally reporting, you know, their vaccination efforts. And we have, in fact, reached out to the communities to say, hey, we have, uh, you know, parking lots and space and uh, other healthcare workers and in, in some cases on staff. 
we'd be really happy to help community vaccinations in uh, rural areas. Um, we, we were invited as the Meat Institute to join as a founding member of the COVID Community Corps, which just kicked off last week. So we are working extremely hard to get past um, not just uh, the actual um, issues, but also the perception that somehow um, this is still raging in our plants. Uh, it is not, and we are very pleased that we've been back, you know, get, had been back up to speed to process um, animals for our, our, our farmer suppliers, uh, producer suppliers, and keeping our workers safe, which is obviously the first priority. It's a success story under, you know, the very difficult circumstances. Well, Julianne Potts, we want to thank you and congratulate your industry for overcoming so many different obstacles and keeping meat in the meat case and serving consumers, not just here in the U.S. and around the world and working with our producers as well. Thank you for being with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and today you've got the last word. Jeff, thank you so much. It's great to be with you. I will just end by saying that it's it's my pleasure, you know, to work with um, the the meat industry, meat and poultry industry, um, because I am able to see firsthand how passionate and dedicated um, our members are to producing food and working with our um, livestock growers and others to make sure we are feeding uh, people here in the United States and around the world. It's a group of people who come from all walks of life, many small uh, family-owned companies, medium-sized family-owned companies, all the way up to our largest packer processors and those that supply them and some that buy their products. They're all members of the Meat Institute, and they do such a fantastic job of, uh, of keeping meat at the center of the plate. So thank you for this opportunity. I really am glad to be able to to talk with you today. Our thanks to President and CEO of the North American Meat Institute, Juliana Potts, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.